Okay, so we are up to um, principle eleven. So it goes to eleven. So that's what we are uh, we are up to. Um, this principle is the one having to do with schar and onish, the one having to do with reward and punishment. Uh, in the uh, as we will see, some of the details and the uh, the thoughts and the philosophy uh, related to uh, to that. So. Um, tonight, at least, uh, before we actually begin to understand a little bit of the nature and the process of reward and punishment, uh, the first thing that I would like to do, the initial thing that I would like to do, is to sort of explore why the Rambam includes this as a principle of belief. Um, seemingly, uh, our obligation to serve God is because of our recognition uh, of God as the creator, the recognition that God is uh, in, gave us a, a set of instructions, which we call the Torah, and that uh, whether God is going to reward us or not, so that's, uh, that's really his doing. Uh, we know, as we're going to talk about probably next week, that we're not supposed to serve God in order to get reward anyways. That's something the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos tells us very clearly that we should not be doing. So why is it a principle of faith that we should go ahead and we should believe in the concept of reward and punishment? And if you remember, uh, one of the things that we have been discussing and analyzing over the course of this series is that every one of these principles of the Rambam, every one of these 13 principles, means that if one does not have a, uh, a, a grounded belief in that particular principle, so it's going to detract from one's avodas Hashem, that one isn't going to be able to serve Hashem properly without having that particular principle or that particular core of belief. And the question is, why exactly is that? Uh, is that so? Why is it so? Why can't I serve God and just do the mitzvahs because I know that He commanded them, regardless of whether He's going to issue reward or not? That's really question number one. And then. The second question that uh, we want to uh, address, at least at the outset tonight, is that when we think about this, uh, the principle, I think many people, when they think about the principle of, uh, of belief and uh, reward and punishment, so we imagine God sitting up somewhere in the heavens on a throne, and as people's actions uh, appear on the screen in front of him, so he goes ahead and he'll do sort of like a thumbs up or a thumbs down kind of uh, response to, uh, to, to what's happening. And, but the truth is, is that, uh, or the question we can ask is, why would God set up a system in which he is going to have to go ahead and give a thumbs up and thumbs down uh, for the thousands and millions of people who are, uh, who, who are alive, uh, rewarding and punishing a, a, accordingly? Seemingly, God, as an omnipotent God, God who could do whatever he wants, so he should have been able to go ahead and structure a system where the reward and punishment is something which is automatic. So you can write some sort of computer program which says if you do activities, you know, one through 613, so you get all sorts of goodies. If you go ahead and you do uh, the Averas of those 613, you do one of 365 Averas, so you'll go ahead and you'll be punished automatically. And we could create a system where these things are something which is a sort of the natural consequence of one's actions, not requiring constant input from God. So the question is, 
So why is it that God went ahead and structured a system where he has to be the one who's going to uh, thumbs up or thumbs down a person's actions and the and reward and punish accordingly, rather than just set up a system, uh, you know, sort of automatically. Uh, when I uh, as I travel now and I uh, I rent cars, so cars are uh, a little bit more sophisticated than my van. I know it's hard to believe, but it's a little bit more sophisticated than my van. And when you set up certain things, so if you decide that you want to switch lanes without telling the car of your intent to do so by turning turning on the turning signal, you can actually feel resistance in the in the steering wheel. It's telling you, no, 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 don't go that way because you haven't, uh, you know, you haven't told me that that's what you want to do, and maybe you're just, you know, not paying attention and you're swerving into the lane next to you. When I was uh, going to uh, to uh, to leave the car rental place in the first place, so there's a whole line of cars in order to check out, and all of a sudden I'm sitting there and I'm checking to to make sure that I'm all caught up in my emails and whatnot, and the car tells me that the car in front of me has already has already moved on, so I wasn't paying attention, so it already knows it's already paying attention to the car next to me that it already moved on and that I'm falling in a sense falling asleep at the wheel. So all of these things are automatic. There's a computer program, which is, uh, you know, keeping track of all of the cars are, uh, around me. So certainly God should be at least as sophisticated as that and be able to set up a, uh, a system where that happens. So why did God not set up a system where things are going to be automatic and instead he wants constant input? So Rav Yaakov Weinberg, so he explains that there is a, well, using his terminology, there's a subtle yet profound difference between serving God where we have the awareness that God is paying attention, that God himself is the one who personally rewards and punishes, versus serving a God where reward and punishment is something which happens automatically. It just follows a system. It follows a computer program, which was, uh, which was written by God, and everything just falls into that, uh, that system. So he uses, as, as an example, an animal which is trained to perform at a circus. So when an animal is trained to, to perform at a, at a circus, so generally the, uh, the, uh, the thinking is, certainly when it comes to the undomesticated animals, this would probably this would likely be even more true. But why is it that the lion, for example, is going to jump through a ring of fire? So it has nothing to do with the relationship, or perhaps has little to do with the relationship that the, uh, that the lion has with the trainer, although some of that may be true, but has much more to do with conditioning. In other words, that the line has been conditioned that if it merely jumps through this ring of fire, so there'll be some sort of reward which the line is going to receive for doing so. And as a result of conditioning time and time again, so the line gets confidence and its fear of the fire uh, dissipates and it goes ahead and it, it, uh, it performs as it has been trained to do. And the same thing is going to be true as far as a misbehavior. One would imagine that if the... Uh, Remember that if the the um, uh, the lion were to go ahead and misbehave, or the animal were to go ahead and misbehave, that that would mean that the lion is going to receive some sort of uh, face some sort of consequence, some sort of negative consequence to make sure that it uh, that it doesn't happen. So therefore, the the uh, performance of the lion in the circus is nothing to do with the relationship it has with the trainer. It's really self-serving because it knows that if it does what it's supposed to do, it gets all sorts of yummy treats. 
in the event that it does, it does what it is not supposed to do. So it's going to face some sort of negative consequence. Uh, probably back in the day, uh, you know, the image which most of uh, us would have from our childhood is the trainer with a whip or something. So the whip is going to keep the lion in, uh, in, in place because it doesn't want to face the, uh, doesn't want to face the whip. So in that regard, so the behavior of the lion does not demonstrate any sort of relationship that the lion has with the trainer. It's something which is completely self, uh, self-serving. So in a similar way, uh, if you're walking down the street uh, and you see somebody who's Jewish, go ahead and bite into a double bacon cheeseburger. And then all of a sudden, a lightning bolt comes out of the sky and zaps that person out of, it, uh, out of existence. So when's the next time you're going to go ahead and be tempted to have, a, I shouldn't say be tempted, when's the next time you're going to go ahead and have a double bacon cheeseburger? Probably never. Now, it has nothing to do with the fact that you're trying to serve God or that, uh, that you've been cured of the temptation of having that double bacon cheeseburger. You just saw what the consequences are. And you say, Oy vey, I don't want to go ahead and face uh, such consequences like that. So you avoid doing those things, not because you care necessarily about Hashem and his Torah and establishing a relationship with Hashem, but because you've been trained that the consequences are so severe you don't want to go ahead and face those consequences. And if you were to walk down the street and see somebody about to bite into a double bacon cheeseburger, and then at the last moment, they go ahead and they refrain and say, you know what? God said, I'm not allowed to eat a double bacon cheeseburger. And the person throws it in the trash. And all of a sudden, a million dollars in a knapsack and unmarked, uh, you know, non-sequential bills falls from the sky into that, uh, right in front of that, uh, that fella. So then you'd also say, you know what? Doing mitzvahs or avoiding doing averas is something which is profitable. And then you would go ahead and do so. Again, in a completely self-serving manner, nothing to do with serving Hashem, nothing to do with valuing a relationship with Hashem, but just because you want the goodies. Uh, if every time you go ahead and you, uh, you know, you say Kriyashma, so, uh, you know, uh, there's another ding on your phone, and that means a thousand dollars were, uh, you know, direct deposit into your account. So we'd be saying Kriyashma all day long, as, uh, you know, as quickly as we could go ahead and we could get another Kriyashma done, we'd go ahead and do so because it would be profitable. But that has nothing to do with relationship with Hashem, but it has everything to do with it being self-serving. So therefore, if God were to go ahead and set up a system where reward and punishment was automatic, that would mean that we wouldn't have any relationship with Hashem. It would not be indicative of the fact that Hashem cares about what we're doing, that he has any interest in what we are doing, that there's any value or concern of what we're doing in the eyes of God. It would be something which is just... You know, you, uh, you do a mitzvah, you get direct deposited money into your account, you do an Avera, some money is withdrawn from your account, and it would just be a simple mathematical equation, and that would not, uh, and, and that would not be good. So when God goes out and says, even though I could write a computer program, which will take care of reward and punishment, I am not going to do so. I'm consciously going to refrain from setting up such a system, because I want to make sure that every person is aware of the fact that they matter to me. Klal Yisrael matters to me. Every individual in Klal Yisrael matters to me. And God, in a sense, is matriach himself. He sort of goes out of his way to make the system more difficult on him, more um, time-consuming, and more, uh, more uh, um, uh, busy, more busy work on his part, to go ahead and to make sure that he is attentive to everything which is going on, so that uh, it would be a uh, it, it would create a meaningful uh, uh, relationship, 
And we know that to be true, that the cannot have a relationship which is unilateral. Can't have a relationship between two people where one person is giving and the other person is just taking and not giving something which is, uh, which is back in, in return. Every relationship which is going to be uh, meaningful and is going to be, uh, which is going to be fulfilling is going to have that sense of it's a two-way street and each one should be giving, it should be giving to the other. And this is true between husband and wife. It's true between parent and child, even as much as uh, um, a child. So it's a, it, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, um, set up children, instinct of children is that when they're happy, they go ahead and they give a smile. And when they smile, nothing can make a, you know, new parents happier than seeing that baby give a smile to them. And even though we know for sure, you know, at least the first few months, a smile just means gas. But nonetheless, it's enough to go ahead and make us thrilled to pieces that we go ahead and we, we think, we fool ourselves into thinking that it's something that we did to the child, which is making them happy. And that feedback system that I did something and now my child is smiling, my child is, uh, is satisfied, my child is happy, is something which... Uh, is necessary for parents to go ahead and receive that type of positive feedback in order to continue to change diapers, clean up vomit, you know, wake up in the middle of the night when one is exhausted, all those things which, which parents do. So we can only really continue to do because we're having that positive feedback loop, which is in place. Because uh, relationships, which are completely unilateral, so they're not meaningful, and it's very difficult to, uh, to sustain them. So in order to make sure that we know, we, the, uh, the, uh, the creatures, which Hashem, uh, which Hashem made, so we need to know, it's essential that we know that Kosh Baruch Hu is attentive and he is, uh, he is responsive to what we are doing. And that's why he set up a system where we have that image of him sitting on a throne and thumbs up, thumbs down, based on the activities that not only Klai Yisrael collectively does, but also each individual in Klai Yisrael does. Now, with this uh, understanding, or with this, uh, hopefully, uh, appreciation of the system which HaKadosh Baruch Hu set up, so this now gives us an interesting insight. It's not really the season right now, but it's, uh, you know, well, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll keep it in mind for, uh, for the Yom Mitovim, which are, uh, you know, a few months away. But this explains to us, this gives us an insight, you know, hopefully an appreciation of why Rosh Hashanah proceeds, why Rosh Hashanah as a Yom Adin, as a day of judgment, why it is that that day precedes Yom Kippur. Now, if, you, if we were to go ahead and uh, decide that we're going to make a, uh, a, a board of directors meeting about how to set up the Jewish calendar, uh, my father often talks about what he would do to the Jewish calendar if he were in charge. So one of the things which, uh, you know, a motion which we would go ahead and we would make if we were in charge is that, listen, if there's going to be such a thing as a day of judgment, which is what Rosh Hashanah is, a Yom Adin. So the best thing that we could do in order to secure a positive judgment is go ahead and get all of our sins forgiven in advance. And if we could get all of our sins forgiven in advance, so that's going to position us in a way where the judgment would certainly be, would certainly be positive. What better way to go into a, into, a, into a Rosh Hashanah, into Yom Adin, than to have the Yom Kippur first. So if we have Yom Kippur first, so then we say, we go ahead and ask forgiveness for all of our sins, and we fast, and we go through, let's say, the Aser Shemei Tshuva, and after we come out after, uh, after Ni'ila, we should go from Ni'ila, the moment where all of our sins are forgiven and we have a completely new slate, then let's have a day of judgment. 
because that means there's no averas, right? You, you took care of all of your uh, your outstanding traffic tickets. So once all of that, once your record has been uh, has been cleaned up and has been absolved, so then, then what better way to go into a Yom Hadin than to have, uh, to go into it with a clean slate? Why would we have the Yom Hadin? Why would we have the Day of Judgment before Yom Kippur? Seemingly the Yom Tovin should follow the, uh, the opposite uh, uh, order. So, this principle, this principle of reward and punishment, the way we're uh, currently understanding, so that explains to us why exactly Rosh Hashanah Yom, uh, comes first, why it's necessary to have Rosh Hashanah in advance of Yom Kippur rather than vice versa. And that is based on this, uh, this idea which we're saying, which is that the whole concept of reward and punishment is, revolves around the issue of relationship. It's not merely a way of rewarding people who do well and punishing people who don't do well in a, uh, a, a non-personal or non-relationship type, uh, type of system. But rather, the whole thing revolves around, as we, as we will discuss, strengthening or weakening the relationship with, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So therefore, uh, by definition, if you're going to go ahead and you're going to ask somebody for forgiveness, what that presupposes is that you have a relationship with that person, and the relationship is something which is meaningful to you. If there's no, if you don't have a relationship with the with the other person, or even uh, even if you have a relationship, but it's not something which is meaningful or you really care about, so then there's no reason to go ahead and ask that person for forgiveness because even if they don't forgive you, what do you care? Because you have no relationship with it anyways. It's a, it's it's completely irrelevant. Uh, if you were to go ahead and uh, again for the for the kids. Uh, it'll be difficult for them to uh, to uh, to uh, imagine, but if you have a vehicle that doesn't have a, a backup camera, so you actually have to back up, uh, you know, estimating how much space you have before you go ahead and you hit that uh, that wall or whatever it is is, but or the car behind you. But let's assume for a wall, and let's say you you uh, you uh, underestimate, and you back up and you hit the wall. So now you've scratched your bumper. Okay, so you're annoyed at yourself that you scratched your bumper. Do you apologize to your car? Obviously, you don't have to apologize to the car because you don't have that type of relationship with a car that you have to be concerned that the car is going to be upset with you that you went ahead and you scratched it because it's an inanimate object. As, and as an inanimate object, so there cannot be a relationship which you have with your, hopefully, uh, for most normal people. So you're not going to have really a meaningful a relationship with your an inanimate object that it would ever necessitate asking forgiveness from that object for something offensive or something harmful that you did to it. You get upset at yourself. You're not going to get the, but you don't have to apologize to the car for what, the, for, for, for what you did. And, uh, uh, but, and that's why in contrast to that, the reason why we're going to get around to establish, to, uh, to asking forgiveness, the, the exercise that we go through, the process that we go through of the Aserah Shumei culminating with Yom Kippur, of asking Hashem for forgiveness it's not the forgiveness per se, which is really what's essential. Really what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, we so value the relationship that we have with you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that we realize upon reflection, we now realize that we've done things over the course of the year, many things over the course of the year. Let me go ahead and list all the things which I've done over the course of the year in Aleph base two times over, and we're going to repeat that again and again. So the reason why we go through all of that is because we realize how damaging all of those behaviors, all of those sinful behaviors are to the relationship that we want to have with you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. 
Now, what's the best way to, in order to uh, magnify and drive home the fact that our sinful behavior has been something which is damaging to our relationship. And upon reflection, we are regretful for that. And we don't want to ever do those things again. So the best thing that we can do before asking for forgiveness is to spend some time contemplating the meaning of the relationship that we have with God. So what's the way that we go ahead and we meditate and we think about and we prepare ourselves by contemplating what exactly is the structure of the relationship? What are the uh, the parameters of the relationship and the character of the relationship that we have with God? So that's what we spend two days of Rosh Hashanah talking about Malchios. The main theme of Malchios, remember that's the Kedushas Hayom, that in Musaf, of, uh, where there's nine brachas in, in Musaf, so the first bracha has both Kedushas Hayom, it has uh, the paragraphs related to the sanctity of the day, including the Korbanos, that's typical of any other Musaf on the Yantif, where we focus our attention on the fact that we currently don't have a Beis Hamitosh, but we yearn to be able to bring the necessary Korbanos, and that bracha doesn't end in, in the midst of that bracha having to do with Kedusha Sayom, having to do with the sanctity of the day. So we go ahead and we segue directly into all of those tzukim, the 10 tzukim in the introductory paragraph and the ending paragraph, all having to do with Malchios. Why do we go ahead and lump all of that together? That's the longest bracha that we have in any Shvod Esrei, is that fourth bracha of Musaf on the uh, on, uh, on, on Rosh Hashanah, putting aside the, the, the vidui, so that's not really part of a bracha, but that's the longest bracha which we have, and the reason why it's such a long bracha is because the two topics go hand in hand, they're inseparable from one another. The sanctity of the day of Rosh Hashanah together with the uh, concept of Malchus. Because the whole point of the day of Rosh Hashanah, the whole point of that uh, of that being the first two of the Aserah Shemei is because that establishes for us a baseline. What baseline does it establish for us? It establishes uh, establishes a baseline in terms of defining for us what our relationship is with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He is the Melech, we are his subjects, and in, with that background in place, that he's the Melech and we are his subjects, it's, we, and we know exactly, we define what exactly our relationship is. And remember, one of the things which we've talked about over the years, the Slonimer, in the Siva Shalom, he emphasizes this very strongly. One of the things which we do by shofar blowing Der Chazar Sashat, the paragraph afterwards, as we say, Im Kebanim, Im Ka'avadim. That we say, is our relationship going to be Im Kebanim? Is it going to be a parent child like relationship? Or Im Ka'avadim, is it going to be a master and a slave type of relationship? Obviously, the parent child relationship is a much more uh, deep and loving relationship than a master and his slave. Master and his slave have sort of like a working relationship with one another. The slave obviously has to listen to what the master says, but it's not because they appreciate one another. It's not because they love one another. It's a relationship of compulsion that the slave has to do what the master says simply because the master is in the dominant position and the uh, the uh, the uh, the slave is in the subordinate uh, position. But a relationship of parent and child is something which is a loving relationship where the things which are done for one another is done out of a sense of love and commitment to one another rather than a dominant or subordinate type of, uh, of position. So that's but why we, the, the truth we, is... What, 
we still say gracious yeah we still value yira over any other kind of relationship right right so so that so that uh, um yeah so your 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 uh, al is uh, raising the point in terms of that there is a yira ava yira loop which exists in other words, that if you look in classic sources, if you look in Shas and Midrashim, so sometimes you will find sources which indicate that love is a higher midah, is a higher trait than yira, than fear or awe. And then sometimes you'll find that fear or awe, like you said, sometimes you'll find that greater emphasis is put on yira, fear, uh, um, fear and awe, rather than love. So the truth is, is that it's, uh, which is confusing if you're trying to play rock, paper, scissors of Jewish philosophy. So what beats what? Does love beat awe or does awe beat love? So the truth is, is that some of the, uh, the commentators explain that there's a lower level of Yira and then there's a higher level of Yira. Lower level of Yira may be what we would describe, uh, let's just try and make it simple, of that one is afraid to sin because one is afraid of consequences. So that type of yira, so that's a valuable yira. Certainly, uh, you know, in an image, from an immature perspective, as a child is developing and growing and maturing, so that will probably be the first thing which is going to motivate them to go ahead and do the correct thing because they don't want to face the, uh, the consequence. Then at some point, as they mature and they're capable of having a loving relationship, so then the, the relationship uh, develops uh, and uh, becomes deeper in a loving relationship. And once that loving relationship is there, so then one is going to be so conscientious, is going to so value that loving relationship that they become fearful of doing something which could potentially harm that relationship. So that's a higher, that's a, the, uh, 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 there, there's a phrase which you find in Tehillim, gilu birada, rejoice in trembling. So gilu, uh, rejoicing, so that sounds like one of those love types of uh, synonyms. Ra'ada, trembling, is, sounds like one of, those, uh, one of those fearful things. So how do you have this balance? Usually we talk about Ava and Yira as being opposite ends of the spectrum. Either it's Ava or it's Yira, and the two don't really mix together. And yet in this Pasuk and Tehillim, you have this idea of Gilu Birada, where you go ahead and rejoice in trembling. So what is a manifestation or an expression or an example of Gilu Birada? So the example which I remember hearing uh, from my uh, Rebbeim, from the, from the Bali Musar, is the idea of Gilu Birada is the emotion that a parent would have as their child is sitting on their shoulders, dancing on Simchas Torah, let's say. So it's a joyous moment. It's a joyous moment to be dancing or, you, you know, or you're having a child or a grandchild on your shoulders at a chasa or something like that. So it's a joyous moment to be able to dance together with a child in such a circumstance. But at the same time that there's this great and immense joy which you're experiencing, you also have this somewhere in your, hopefully, somewhere in your mind is the awareness that I hope the child doesn't fall. (laughs) If the child squirms too much, they could fall and they could get hurt. So there's a sense of trembling of uh, that you don't want to go ahead and do something which is going to ruin that moment or to get totally consumed by the ava and to lose yourself and end up doing something which could uh, 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 end up being harmful. So gilu birada is that sense of uh, of uh, of uh, of um, um, 
uh, a proper balance, a proper value. It's, it, it's love on such a high level that one becomes like super conscientious of the relationship and therefore does not want to do anything which could potentially harm that loving relationship. So that's why you have a level of Yira, a level of Ahava on top of that, and then a level of Yira even on top of that, of the highest of, uh, the highest of, uh, of levels. Um, okay, now, um, is, a, is an interesting side note. Uh, one of the things which is fascinating uh, to consider that if uh, sometimes what we, uh, what we do is, um, and we know this from our, our learning experience, that sometimes it's not just uh, enough to understand and appreciate what is there, what is on the page of the Gemara, what is there in the Pasuk, but sometimes there's a lot to learn about what should have been there and actually is not there. And to wonder why does the Pasuk not say this? Why does the Gemara not use a particular expression when seemingly it would be appropriate? So if you take a step back, you know, nobody has the list in front of them, but if you take a step back, we haven't even gone through all of them, so I can't hold you responsible for it, so I'll tell you the answer. But if you were to go ahead and look at the list of 13 principles and say, what would possibly be a 14th principle, which is essential to Judaism, which actually is not there? So what Rav Yosef Albo, we've mentioned him a number of times over this, uh, this series, so he wrote sort of a critique on the Rambam's 13 principles called the Sefer Ha'ikarim. So in the Sefer Ha'ikarim, Rav Yosef Albo says that the Rambam left out one of the most fundamental principles of all, and that is the principle of free will. There's no principle which goes ahead and addresses explicitly the concept of so remember, we have the first five principles have to do with God, describing God. The middle four have to do with Torah. And then, and in Nevoah and things related to that. And then the last four have to do with reward and punishment. So the last four, which is where we may expect that, is Hashkacha Pratis, divine providence. That was the last principle. Right now we're on reward and punishment. We're going to have the next two are going to be the coming of the Mashiach, and then resurrection of the dead. So if there is going to be another principle, which we would expect to be in the list somewhere, uh, free will would seemingly be a fundamental principle of faith. How are you going to have Judaism without if you don't believe that people have the ability to choose between eating the double bacon cheeseburger or not? Or people don't have the ability to choose whether to say Kriyashma or not say Kriyashma or any of those things. So seemingly that's going to undermine the whole system. You won't have any reward and punishment or anything of that, uh, that sort without presupposing, without the, uh, the, uh, the allowance for Bechir HaChavshis. So uh, it seems to me that Bechir HaChavshis is really, it's an inseparable part of reward and punishment. Because reward and punishment, if, if everything we did was automatic, if we were pre-programmed to do mitzvahs and to not do Averas, so then, meaning that we don't have the chirachavshis, so then you can't really describe the consequences in terms of reward and punishment. Reward and punishment only makes sense in the event that a person could have chosen to the contrary and they chose well. So being that you chose well, you chose to eat good food rather than non-healthy food. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to reward you with long-term good health because of those, uh, the, those choices. In the event that the, these are things which happen automatically, so there's no reason to go, there, there's no place to go ahead and reward and punish if the person doesn't have the ability to choose. 
when you drive into your pull up in your driveway, you pull up in front of your house, you don't go ahead and pat your car on the on the, on the head on the uh, the the, uh, the the top and say good driving job today. I'm really proud of you that uh, you know that you were able to get me from uh, you know point A to point B. That's just what cars do. That's uh, they're, they're designed to drive. It's not a choice that they're making. So you don't go ahead and spend a lot of time talking about talking to cars today. I apologize. Uh, we're talking to Alexa all the time, so we might as well start talking to our cars. But we, uh, but there, there, there's, there's no conversation that you have with your car because it's not something which you chose to drive well or not drive well. It's something which is automatic as part of its, uh, its programming. So our principle here, the principle 11, which, re which revolves around this topic of punishment, it's impossible to talk about reward and punishment without presupposing that there's b'chir and therefore, they're so intertwined with one another, they're so interconnected with one another, that the Rambam doesn't go ahead and delineate Bechira uh, Chavshi's free choice as a separate principle, because it is, it is one with the, uh, this concept of reward and punishment. And therefore, since they're interdependent, so the Rambam didn't feel that it was necessary to go ahead and enumerate Bechira Chavshis as a separate independent principle when really it gets rolled into this principle of reward and punishment, uh, and therefore it's not necessary to go ahead and, uh, and elaborate uh, any further. Okay, now let's begin to explore how exactly uh, reward and punishment is granted, what exactly is the system by which reward and punishment is going to be, uh, is, is going to be uh, divided, and um, define for us what exactly qualifies as reward. Uh, a gold star, perhaps a dollar from uh, you know, God's wallet, his proverbial wallet or something like that, the lollipop. So what exactly, uh, hopefully not a dum-dum, but uh, uh, you know, something, which is, uh, you know, something which is coming from, uh, from God. So the first thing that we have to know, which almost seems shocking when you think about this idea, when we have a whole principle of reward and punishment, Yet, the Gemara's conclusion is, although it's something which is debated, the Gemara's conclusion is that schar mitzvah Baha'i alma leka, which translates as, there's no such thing as reward for mitzvahs in this world. So what exactly does that mean? How can we have a whole principle which says that you get rewarded for the mitzvahs which you do, you're going to get punished for the averas which, which, which you do, and then in the very next breath, Go ahead and make a declaration, that there's no such thing as reward for mitzvahs in this world. So if there's no such thing as reward for mitzvahs in this world, so what exactly does reward mean? This principle of reward and punishment, how exactly are we going to, uh, to reconcile that? And furthermore, why would it be that God doesn't go ahead and reward us in this world? Seemingly, if uh, somebody was, uh, you know, so tempted to buy the double bacon cheeseburger, they actually went into the store, they bought the double bacon cheeseburger, and then right as they are about to go ahead and, uh, you know, uh, chomp in, they find themselves saying hamotzi, you know, instinctively, because whenever they go ahead and have a sandwich, they're going to say hamotzi, and then suddenly a thought occurs to them, how could I say Hashem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam, invoke God's name? as the master and the king of the universe, as I'm about to have a double bacon cheeseburger, which has who knows how many isurim which are involved in that, and they refrain from eating that, why shouldn't Hashem go ahead and deposit a million dollars, direct deposit into their account? It's a great effort on their part um, 
great self-control to refrain from eating that double bacon cheeseburger when you already had it there in the car with you and it actually looks and smells as good as you, uh, you always imagined, why should the person not get the good, uh, you know, $10,000, $100,000 into their account for, uh, for exercising that, that, that self-control? So Rev Dessler, so he explains this idea. Uh, he, he elaborates on this based on a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. The Mishnah in Pirkei Avos says that the entire world, our entire universe, is not equal to even a moment of the world to come. So the mission there is creating, seemingly, not seemingly, but it is, it's creating a mathematical equation that, uh, you know, it's like an SAT type of, uh, type of question. You have, on one side of the equation, you have the entire universe. On the other side of the equation, you have uh, one moment in Olam Haba. And now you have to decide whether you're going to put a greater than sign, less than sign, or an equal sign. So the Mishnah in Perkei says, since we wouldn't necessarily know the answer, so the Mishnah says that uh, the, the, what you're going to put, the correct answer to this question is, is that one moment of Olam Haba is greater than the entire universe. That's what the Mishnah in Perkei says. So what exactly does that mean? How are we to interpret that if we're going to add sort of a purish Rashi to that? We're going to elaborate on that mathematical equation. So what exactly is it telling us? So Dessler, uh, in his almost uh, 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 inimitable style, although the Bali Musser, uh, you know, do this uh, on occasion, but he goes ahead and he paints a picture for us to go ahead and explain the full meaning and the full depth of the statement by Chazal that the entire universe is not equal to one moment in Olam Haba. So he says, Rav Dessler begins, and he says, think about the happiest moment of your life. Could be when you got married, it could be when you had a child, it could be when your child had a child, it could be when your child moved out of the house. All sorts of us have different uh, you know, personal experiences, what we would consider to be the most joyous moment of our lives. And he says, uh, meditate on that moment for a minute. You know, just think about how joyous you were at that moment when you felt that uh, the greatest uh, joy that you had in your life. And then he says, imagine if you were to go ahead and to take that moment and uh, expand it so that it filled your entire life of 60 years. So imagine what it would be like to have 60 years consecutive, nonstop, of that intense joy which you felt at that moment of your child's chasana, when you had a baby, whatever the, uh, your joyous moment though was. So you take that one moment of joy, that minute of joy, that hour of joy, which was intense joy that you had, and now go ahead and imagine you can stretch that out and expand that so it fills up a lifetime of 60, 70, 80 years of that joy. So imagine how much joy is contained over the course of that lifetime. Now, go ahead and we're going to multiply that out because we're not going to go ahead and take only your joy into account, but go ahead and take the joy which you experienced and go ahead and spread that out to all the people that you know. So you can look in your contact list on your phone, how many contacts are there. So you've got uh, a few hundred people who are in your contact list. So imagine all of them have a lifetime of 80 years, 100 years, 120 years of just pure unadulterated joy. So how much joy is contained in all of those lives, all the people that you know, 500 people, let's say, uh, uh, times 120 years, all of that joy, and then go ahead and multiply that out to the people who are alive on the earth today. So you're going to take everybody's joy, 
spread out over 120 years, go ahead and concentrate that into one moment. Then, in, in, you know, try and imagine, try and calculate how much joy is contained in that moment of the billions of people alive today, 120 years of all of their lives, take all of that joy, 120 years times a billion of joy and concentrate that into one moment. Then, go ahead, just to finish off the equation, take everybody who has ever existed in the history of the world, 5,881 years of people, the duration of all of their lifetimes, filled with the most profound joy that has ever been experienced. So you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of years when you add up everybody together, take all of that joy, the, the totality of all people who existed in history and concentrate all of that joy spread out over 120 years and put that into one moment. So that's almost unfathomable how joyous that moment would be. Rav Dessler said that the mission in Perkei is telling us that if you take all of the joy which ever existed over the course of world history, of human history, all of the joy, you concentrate that into one moment, that one moment of joy is not equal to a moment in Olam Haba. So that's an amazing thing to consider about how much joy, what exactly Olam Haba is going to be, because we can't even imagine, you know, uh, uh, you know, a whole week of that type of intense, profound joy, let alone our entire lives, in all of the lives of everybody who's alive today, and all of the lives of everybody who ever was alive, and to say that that pales in comparison to one moment which a person is going to experience of joy being in Olam Haba. So therefore, he says, based on that, that uh, when we say that, when the Mishnah said, therefore, when we say, when Chazal tell us that schar mitzvah Baha'i al-Maleka, that there's no such thing as reward for mitzvahs in this world, that's coming to emphasize, it's coming to illustrate for us this idea that the reason why Hashem cannot reward us in this world is because this world cannot contain the profound reward which is in store for a person who does any mitzvah. Any one mitzvah is worth, is more joy than we could go ahead and we could imagine of the entire world's joy concentrated into one mitzvah, into one moment, and that's not going to be equal to the reward which is in store for every individual mitzvah which a person does. And we know that Chazal say that every Jew, even those who are not religious, Chazal say, are filled with mitzvahs like a rimon. So if even the non-observant are filled with mitzvahs like a pomegranate, imagine those of us who are trying to do mitzvahs on a daily basis. So imagine what the reward is going to be. It's something which is beyond our comprehension. And that's why Chazal tells us that even the, the nevuah, which we find that the Nevi'im are going to have descriptions of Olam Haba, that is going to be just, it's a small fraction of what is actually going to be in store for people in the world to come, because they can only go as far as they can only go one step in terms of understanding what's going to be. But even the greatest of the Nevi'im can in no way capture how much reward is going to be in store for each person, for every mitzvah which they did. So therefore, doesn't mean that we don't get rewarded. It means that it's the opposite is true, that God wants to reward us so plentifully that to go ahead and reward us in this world, we think that having a million dollars directly deposited into our account, that that would be a good reward. We'd be happy with, uh, with that. But that would literally be 
literally and figuratively, that would be like paying a person one penny for a million dollar job. If a person did a million dollar job, you go ahead and you pay them a penny, so that's already insulting. You know, what, what, what's a penny going to do? You owe me millions of dollars. I went seven figures, not to the right of the, of the decimal point, but to the left of the decimal point. I went seven figures of, of income coming in over there, and you're giving me a penny? So that's an insult to go ahead and do that. That can't possibly capture how, well, how meaningful it is. So that phrase, Char isn't meant to say that we are not rewarded. It's the opposite. It's coming to tell us how profound the reward is going to be that this entire world, with all of the joy, if we were trying to combine all that together, it would not be able to capture the, uh, the true reward which is in store for all the mitzvahs. And therefore, that's why there's not going to be actual reward which is distributed in, this, uh, in, the, in the physical world in which, we, uh, in which we find ourselves. So that is going to be uh, part one of, the, uh, of our analysis of what the reward is. Mir uh, Hashem next week. So we'll go ahead and we'll pick it up from, uh, from here. We'll get the part two of this, uh, of this principle. Meantime, we have to finish so we could go ahead and get ourselves to, uh, to Mincha Marv.